Our scripture passage for this morning is from the book of Psalms. We're in a series on the Psalms. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 95 with me. If you have a black Bible, turn to page 499. If you do not have your own Bible, please grab one over there and take it and keep it. That is our gift to you. That is yours to have. The big numbers are the chapter numbers and the little numbers are the verse numbers. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, I'm organizing this barrier between me and you guys. (laughs) This is always a little bit intimidating. I was sitting back there at uh, greeter time, and Amanda... Wish me good luck. So I said, yeah, I hope I don't stumble over my words too badly. And she said, well, if you do that, just start dancing. So if you see me starting to move up here, you know, that's what will be happening. We have a mild topic today. I hope to walk you through this in a way that... uh, um, it's a little edifying anyway, but please bear with me. But right now, uh, let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, um, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So I have technology up here. I have a Ryan cell phone. And somehow it works this thing. And all I got to do is push it. So a lot going on today. All right. So what really matters? A daunting question. A big question question that spans the finite reality that we live in to encompass the eternal. A question I rather arrogantly set out to answer when I took on uh, saying something about Psalm 95 a few months ago. Um, As Ryan as well well knows, This has been a struggle for me. Um, 
what really does matter in life. In the great sweep of the cosmos, uh, what really matters? We're here, the universe is here. Why? What's it for? What are we doing day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year? We live out our lives towards what? For whom? What really matters? Scientists have been tackling a similar question over the past several years. They have developed a theory. Appropriately, it's called the theory of everything. And its purpose is to fully explain the origins and function of the physical universe. There's a definition of the theory of everything that I found in Wikipedia, source of all good things. It says, a theory of everything, final theory, ultimate theory, or master theory, is a hypothetical, single, all-encompassing, coherent theoretical framework of physics that fully explains and links together all physical aspects of the universe. They have another name for it, if I can pronounce it. Disambiguation. So they, they disambiguous it. Paul, help me out up here. Disambiguate the universe. Okay. The theory of everything attempts to take uh, the two th theories on upon which modern physics rests and makes them one. First theory is, the general, uh, is, is of general relativity. The, the second is quantum field theory. They are both about the force that governs everything. So all you Star Wars fans out there, pay attention. This is about the force. General relativity deals with the big force, gravity, that holds the stars and the galaxies together and keeps us firmly planted on this, planted on this planet. Okay? Quantum theory deals with the small forces that hold atoms and molecules together. Together, these are the Forces, uh, these forces work to make existence as we know it possible. The theory of everything is a noble endeavor. It's a good thing to try and understand how nature works, if you will. But it uh, doesn't really matter. Life has gone on since the beginning without having any unified theory of how things work. But life struggles and falters when we lose sight of what really matters. So what really matters? The big question. As I said, I arrogant, arrogantly waited in on giving some small perspective 
on the answer. But I've been humbled by the effort, believe me. So, here's what I have. It comes mostly from the negative. Uh, but it is, a, uh, it is a perspective, and I hope it helps in some small way uh, to point you to what really matters. I recently... Okay. Just checking my slides here. I'm not... I recently had a rather graphic reminder of the lack of permanence to the things of this world. My wife, Lori, called me in mid-June and said she had been watching the news and saw a piece covering the implosion of the Bud Company plant at Charlevoix and Connor Avenues in Detroit. She knew this was significant, significant to me because in 1978, that, that is where I began my career as an engineer. I had worked in the automotive industry since my junior year in high school, running prints and errands and occasionally uh, doing a little drafting uh, for this company that made automated welding equipment uh, for car body assemblies. Okay. That was 1964. The automotive industry then was Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler, with American Motors in the background always just holding on. In the time between 1964 and 1978, although there was much upheaval in the world and at a national level in America, Day-to-day -day life seemed to my young eyes fairly stable. Jobs were plentiful, and for anyone willing to work, advancement was not hard. Um, I'm going to stop looking up. I'm going to lose my place again. Uh, it's not hard. I was never out of work in those days. Sometimes jumping jobs for a quarter an hour raise. A good stable living came easy. You could buy a home in a good neighborhood, have two cars in the garage, take vacations, and maybe save a little money on about 20,000 a year. Although saving money wasn't really necessary. Because right? if you worked in the automotive industry, most likely you had a pension to go along with your social security to support you in your retirement years. In the early 70s, I remember paying off my social security obligation uh, for the year in April. So it was like getting a 5% raise for two-thirds of the year. If you all know what's going on with Social Security these days, you'll understand that's very unusual. Of course, there's a lot more going on in those years. I got drafted into the Army. I went to Vietnam. I came back and started college where I met my bride-to-be, now of 46 years, tomorrow. Okay. 
We got married, we had kids, we bought our first home. Uh, as I worked as a designer in the automotive industry, and went to school at night to get my engineering degree. So in 1978, at 31 years of age, I finally had a piece of paper in my hand that said I was an engineer. And I walked into the door of the Bud Company plant on Charlevoix and Connor to work as an engineer in the automotive industry. And that's a picture of the plant from about that time. 5,000 people worked there. You know, so all the cars parked around. I was the first person in my family to get a college degree. So for the next 32 years, that's what I did. In a lot of ways, who I was, an engineer in the automotive industry. At least that's what I did with well over half of my waking time. <clears throat> my experience with the Charlevoix and Connor plant was brief. Only a couple of years as the Bud, uh, Bud's engineering group moved to the northern suburbs of Detroit near Pontiac. In truth, I was happy to see the last of it. It was a creepy place. 2.2 million square feet of feverish activity and, and in dark, empty spaces. I remember hearing the, the plant manager carried a gun around when he walked the floor. And then there was Detroit. The Bud plant and the city of Detroit were metaphors for each other. Dark, empty, scary places. But it wasn't always that way. The Bud plant was already 66 years old when I went to work there. It had its origins in the birth of the automotive industry. Uh, built in 1912 for the Liberty Motor Car Company, one of dozens of automotive companies that sprang up uh, in Detroit beginning uh, at the turn of the 19th century. Some of these companies Some of these companies you may know. There's the Liberty Motor Car. There were more, many more. Hupp, Abbott, Regal, Carter Car, Hudson, Lincoln, Norway, Packard, Dodge, Chrysler, Oldsmobile, Maxwell, Buick, Pontiac, Chevrolet, and more. Detroit boomed. Hundreds of thousands flocked to Detroit for good jobs and good wages. Thousands of businesses sprang up in support of the automotive companies. Factories were built, office buildings sprang up, and homes were built. Thousands and thousands of single-family homes. By the 1950s, more people owned their own homes in Detroit 
than anywhere else in the country. Anywhere, anywhere else in the world, really. Everything wasn't great, of course. There was depressions, wars, and unrest to deal with. There were always, there, there, and there was always the boom and bust cycle in the industry that dampened one's plans. 1953, Charles Wilson, the president of GM, during a congressional confirmation hearing for his appointment as Secretary of Defense, famously said that as General Motors goes, so goes the nation. Which was true in a sense. GM owned over 50% of the automotive market in that time. But it would, been, it would have been more true to say that the automotive industry, or as the auto, as the automotive industry goes, so goes the nation. No matter what life threw, at, threw your way, we still had, we still stood on the foundation of the automotive industry. That, that was what I stepped into in 1964 uh, as a high schooler and what I jumped into in 1978 with both feet at the Bud Company plant on Charlevoix and Connor Avenue. Of course, the automotive industry wasn't the foundation that I thought it was. In fact, I joined at a time when the industry was tipping over its high point and starting a precipitous fall. Suddenly, little companies in faraway places could build cars. Soon, there were offerings that were higher quality, more reliable. Did it again. Cheaper, all right? Than, Americans, than the American Big Three, GM, Ford, and Chrysler. Technology was cutting into the systems and methods of car design and manufacture. Companies burdened with old ways of doing things and bloated cost weren't nimble enough to keep up. Foundationally, they were coming apart. Then, you all know in 19, or 2009, no longer able to, uh, to handle the ups and downs of the economy, GM and Chrysler went hat in hand to the federal government hoping for bailouts. The, uh, the American automotive industry, no longer the engine that drives the nation, no longer the foundation of the economy, no longer something to build a life upon. One more time. There goes the Bud Charlevoix plant. In my early working years, I put a lot of stock in my ability, my own ability to make a good place for myself and my family through the automotive industry. To me, it had always been there and certainly seemed to me to be a permanent thing. 
I needed to do, all I needed to do was make my mark and I would pretty much be set for life. I didn't, uh, didn't turn out that way. And as it turns out, that was a good thing. What really matters had nothing to do with the automotive industry. So what really matters? I use on occasion the English Standard Version, the ESV Study Bible for my daily readings and prep for my life group. Uh, it includes many doctrinal and theological commentaries. At the beginning of its discussion on how God reveals himself uh, to us, it says, knowing God is the most important thing in life. For most of us, mentally, we can make that leap to agree with the statement. It is a logical consequence of accepting that God is indeed God. But to accept God, but to accept God as the most important thing in my life, at the heart level, requires displacing myself from that role. Is it not true? that we all consider ourselves the most important thing in our lives? At least most of the time. But even when we put someone or something ahead of ourselves, we do it because we think that, what, that it will do us the most good. Anyway, we didn't invent self-centeredness. It was a common problem uh, for mankind since the fall. Even Israel, with its hands-on relationship with God, continually missed the point and had to be reminded. Moses, by the inspiration of God, set up layers and layers of reminders for what really matters. The tabernacle, and then later the temple, containing the very presence of God. Their sacrificial system, their feast days, the Sabbath, and even the clothes they wore reminded them of what really mattered in life. To a great extent, reminder was the purpose of the Old Testament scripture. Um, this is God. This is you. This is how the relationship works. Stop doing that. Don't break that relationship. Do this, be restored, over and over again. The pattern repeats itself. Israel obedient, Israel disobedient. God rings Israel's bell, Israel's obedient again. So the cycle went. Psalm 59 fits the role of reminder. Let's go through it and see what you think. Okay? But first, I need to engage you in this discussion. Okay? Been bothered by something and need your take on how to solve the problem. There's a group of psalms in the book of Psalms that is called Songs of Ascent or Ascents. All right? 
There are 15 of them. They begin with Psalm 120 and end with Psalm 134. One interpretation of their purpose is that they were sung by people who were, as they ascended to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's on a high hill, and to go to the temple. Now here's the problem. As I've read and reread Psalm 95, I'm more and more convinced that it was probably a mistake on the part of the compilers of the book of Psalms that they missed including Psalm 95 in the Song of Ascents. Does anyone know where I'm going with this? Hmm? Um, does anybody know who I go to to make a change in the Bible? Any? Here's an example. Uh, this is Psalm 127. It's one of the songs of ascent. It was written by Solomon. And I'm not questioning its wisdom. But as a song, I'm, I'm going to sing as I go up to worship at the temple. I don't see it. Here, listen to this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build, build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are an heritage, are, children are a heritage from God, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies. In the gate. It's pretty good, huh? First God, God's rest, loads of arrows in your quiver, and uh, it will get over your enemies in the gate. Wonderful psalm. Great stuff. But I'd give it a three as a song of ascent. Humor. Right, uh, but look at Psalm 95, everything you could want in a song of ascent, everything you need to prepare to come into the presence of the Lord in remembrance and worship is in, the, is in Psalm 95. I'd give it a 10 as a song of ascent. Why? Well, let's take it apart and look. By the way, I'm using the uh, good news translation for these verses. Okay. Come, let us praise the Lord. Let us sing for joy to God who protects us. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and sing joyful songs of praise. Yes. 
Isn't that how we should come into God's presence? With joy, with praise, and with thanks? If, we are, if I was coming to Jerusalem, to the temple of the Holy God, maybe from far away uh, for one of the yearly feasts, or maybe I live nearby. Either way, I'm making it up the, the mountain to come into the presence of God. I, want, I am told in Scripture that God's presence resides in the temple. And I believe it. This is no minor thing. And I am going to be ready. So I'm going to, I'm going to praise my God with all I have. And he broke out dancing. Okay. But then comes an acknowledgement on our part of who God is. For the Lord is a mighty God, a mighty king over all the gods. He rules over the whole earth, from the deepest caves to the highest hills. He rules over the sea which he made, and the land also which he himself formed. Our God is a king of kings and lord of lords. He is a creator God who spoke. Get that. Just spoke. And all things came into being. Smallest particle of matter to the biggest galaxy billions and billions of light years away. Not only did he speak everything into existence, his hands... His hand guides the minutest movement in its every thought and orchestrating all to his plan and purpose. As I make my way up this mountain, I have to get ready. I have to get my heart ready. I have to prepare myself to come into the presence of him who is my all in all. We wait. As good as it is to come into the presence of him who is everything with singing and praise, he's not just God. He's our God. Come, let us bow down and worship him. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He is our God. We are the people He cares for. For the, the flock for which He provides. Our God is a personal God. Our God. We are the flock He cares for. When we are lost or hurt or sick, He is there to care for us. When we, wa when we walk ourselves into a corner that we refuse to budge from, you know, like sheep will do, you know. He won't leave us to our own devices. He will, he will care even if we don't want him to care. When we are his, he will provide. Wow. I'm going to make a joyful noise before the mighty God who cares for me. I am nearly running up the hill. I can't wait to get into his presence. My God, you are great. But wait, I hear something. 
What is he saying? What do I need to remember? Listen today to what he says. Don't be stubborn as your ancestors were at Meribah, as they were that day in the desert of Massa. There they put me to the test and tried me, although they had seen what I did for them. For 40 years, I was disgusted with those people. I said, how disloyal they are. They refused to obey my commands. I was angry, and I made a solemn promise. You will never enter the land where I have given you rest. I've slowed. My head's down. Something's wrong. Listen. I'm listening. Stubborn? I'm not stubborn. That was them. That was my ancestors, not me. They chased after other gods, not me. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't trust the Lord, uh, that the Lord would provide. Moses was the one who struck the rock. It wasn't me chasing after those Moabite women and the Baal and Baal of Peor. After all God did for them and showed them in those days, in those days and months leading up to the spies' report in the wilderness of Paran, they refused to enter the land, not me. I would have stood with Joshua and Caleb and given a good report to the people. I'm not disloyal. I don't refuse your commands. I don't hold, don't hold me back, Lord. Wait. Wait. Am I any different than my forefathers? In my heart, am I not more fearful of the world than I am of the Lord? Don't the cares of the day engross me more than God and my God? Water, Lord. Meat, Lord. Give me victory over my enemies, Lord. But I like gold. Silver is nice. Isn't there a way to serve God and mammon too? No, wait, I have it wrong. It's my heart, Lord. I can't get it right. All my efforts and good intentions missed the mark. I'm a sinner, Lord. Help me. Wait, where am I? Is this the gate to the temple? I'm here. The journey's over. Lord, may I come in? Now that's a song of a sense. Don't you think? Anyone know who I can talk to about moving the Psalm 95 to the song of a sense? Anyway, 
Psalm 95 doesn't really need to be a song of ascents uh, to impact us in a way that really matters. It reminds us of who God is, who we are, and how we should relate to him. There is a sense to the psalm of climbing, a journey upward to a better, truer place. It's a mental journey more than a physical one. A series of recognitions that take us to a higher place. (coughs) Excuse me. Not used to talking all this much. A place of right relationship with the realities of existence. A clearer sense of God in ourselves. God, you are God. God, you love me and care for me. But like all those that came before me, I am weak and tend to wander. But you will save me. And on that day, when I come into your presence in joyful song and praise. It's not what I can do that matters. It's what he can do. It's what he's done. But there is something we can do. Too soon. Oh well. I've had this song knocking around in my head for weeks now. You guys probably know what I'm talking about <laughs> since I got ahead of myself. It's one of those songs that you find yourself singing to yourself without really knowing you're singing it. The song is from a musical, from the musical Godspell which came out in the early 1970s. The lyrics are simple, several repeats of... Day by day, day by day. Oh dear Lord, three things I pray. To see thee more clearly. To love thee more dearly. Follow thee more nearly, day by day. I, of course, can't leave things alone. And I find myself reordering the things I pray for. So it's day by day, day by day. Oh, dear Lord, three things I pray. To see thee more clearly, to follow thee more nearly, to love thee more dearly, day by day. So day by day we pray to see more clearly, follow more nearly, seems to be the better sequence. And like the psalmist running up the hill to the temple, we can stand at the gate dearly in love and knock and be welcomed in. 
to wrap this up. You guys probably know every week Ryan sends out an email to the congregation called This Week at Grace Point. In it, he gives a, a brief review of the Sunday sermon and provides a few links to articles and posts about particular Christian, uh, with a particular Christian relevance. One such link a few weeks ago was to uh, a Christianity Today interview with Johnny Erickson Tata, who I consider to be one of the most extraordinary people of our time. If you don't know her, uh, she's a Christian author and speaker and artist. And over the years, a voice for the gospel of Jesus Christ like few others. Fifty years ago, she was a 17-year-old girl who dove off, uh, dove into the wa a water-filled quarry and broke her neck. Since then, as the title of the ar article states, she's been in a wheelchair, quadriplegic but she continues to walk with Jesus. First question in the article was, how do you feel as you reflect back over those 50 years? And this is what she said. I'll give you a second with it. Just want to highlight the things I've got up there. He said, I'm amazed that the last 50 years feel like only a little while. Maybe God does that when, he finally, when we finally do love Jesus more, when we finally do follow him more closely. And then at the bottom there, I look back over 50 years, or as I look back over 50 years, I just see God at work. So what really matters? Does having a theory of everything, knowing how, uh, how everything in the universe works, does that matter? It's nice to know, but it doesn't rise to the level of what really matters. The theory of everything is limited to everything finite. What really matters reaches into the eternal. So what really matters? God matters. A relationship to God matters. God's work through Jesus Christ matters because without that, there would be no relationship with God. And our relationship with God is what defines our eternity. That's what matters. Thank you.